I love Sundays. Anybody with me? Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I love the Lord's Day. Do you know why this is the Lord's Day? Because it's Sunday, first day of the week, that Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, walked out of the tomb. So because of Jesus, every one of you that's here, your sins can be forgiven. Because of Jesus, you can have joy in your life no matter, you ready for this biblical truth, you can have joy in your life no matter your circumstances. You don't have to raise your hand on this one, but anybody have some rough circumstances this week? The Apostle Paul, his whole life was a series of difficult circumstances, but he was a man of great joy. So it's a lie to think good circumstances lead to joy. Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone leads to joy. A little bit later on this morning, I'm going to preach to you from, it might be my favorite paragraph in the whole Bible. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I was thinking about this a little bit this week. If, we're not going to do this, but if I invited you to come stand here on the stage with me and handed you a microphone and gave you an opportunity to share the gospel with every person that's present, where would you start? Where would you begin? Well, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, I think is the most succinct and glorious proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. So we'll study that a little bit more in detail a little bit later on in our uh, service. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for light in the darkness. Thank you that when we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, you have been rich in mercy. So we pray, I pray in Jesus' name that today, today, will be a day honoring the one who on the first day of the week did walk out of the tomb. So I pray for anybody that's here today and they are dead in their trespasses and sins. You will raise them up with Jesus. I pray for the discouraged, Lord, today that you'll speak a word of refreshment. Uh, Lord, for those um, tempted to head in the wrong direction, Lord, I pray that your loving kindness will call them to yourself. And that it will be our steadfast hope that the world offers us nothing that we don't have um, so much better from in the person of Jesus. You are a great God, and we are joyful that you've stepped into the world in order to redeem us. We pray that you would give us grace to seek your face together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's greet one another as we continue together this morning. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to open to the table of contents and look in the New Testament. And be finding Titus, right? And uh, then once you've done that, find where Titus is and turn there. Uh, And I want you all to be able to find it so you can see this remarkable paragraph for yourselves. I do have to tell you that uh, y'all are not smiling at me nearly as much as you were smiling at the children's choir. I'm decided not to take it personally. And uh, I am grateful that we get to study this together this morning. The Word of God really is powerful. It really is alive. It really is active. It really does contain, I believe, God's message for us. And so of all the things that we give our attention to on an ongoing basis, I commend the Scripture to you. It's not ever a question of whether the Word is alive, the it's only a matter of if we are alive unto the Word. Uh, how many of you, this is the audience participation portion, how many of you took a photograph yesterday? How many of you got your camera out, pointed, clicked, took a picture? It's the, you, we're not going to ask any follow-up questions, I promise. Just how many of you took a picture yesterday? I, I read recently that more pictures have been taken in the last three years than all the previous time combined had been taken. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Uh, In fact, uh, photography used to be a lot more rare than it is now, and in one of the most momentous historical occasions in the history of our country, only one photograph survives. I want to put that picture on the screen. You're probably not going to be able to make it out very well. It's a little bit blurry, 
even if the photograph itself and not a copy of it were in your hands, it'd be kind of hard to recognize what it is. But this picture was taken on November the 19th, 1863 at Gettysburg. So that might clue you in to what happened that day. Uh, Abraham Lincoln spoke that day, but he was not the featured speaker when 8,000 people gathered at the Gettysburg battlefield to dedicate the uh, burial site there of those who had given their lives. A man named Edward Everett, you may never have even heard of him, but in 1863, he was the most well-known orator in the nation. He served as president of Harvard University, and he was renowned as a speaker at a time when they renowned orators, kind of the way that we renowned actors, actresses, and athletes today. There was great respect in 1863 for someone who could really give a great speech. And on that day, Edward Everett spoke. Are you ready for this? As they stood there, he spoke for two hours. That was the length of his speech. No television back then, so they had a little bit longer attention span, perhaps. I don't know. Plus, they made him stand. After he spoke, Abraham Lincoln spoke. And he spoke not for two hours, he spoke for two minutes and gave what we know as the Gettysburg Address. He didn't speak long, his speech didn't last long, but his speech has lasted, you know what I mean? He said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, said this today, this picture was taken, we are met, or now we are engaged, rather, in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field to those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. And it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who fought here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or to detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated to the unfinished work which remains, which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be dedicated to the great cause the unfinished work which remains, that we from these honored dead take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of their devotion. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Two minutes. Two minutes. And then Edward Everett, wrote Abraham Lincoln a note the next day. And here's what his note says. He said, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Sometimes powerful things can be said succinctly, right? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, I'm going to call the grace address. It's not very long, but it is so powerful. And I believe in the scripture, it comes as close to any paragraph as the central idea of the occasion that is God sending his son. And what is it that God has done for us in Christ Jesus? I am going to ask you to stand 
for the reading of God's holy word at this time. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, the grace address. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for grace. I pray for grace today. That from your word we can see the central idea of your heart towards us. That we can see the central idea of the gospel. That no one who is attentive in humility today will go ignorant this morning of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. So speak fresh words to us today. We need fresh uh, hearing of these ancient truths rooted in your heart for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I encourage you to keep uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 before you. Uh, This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, a young friend of his named Titus. Uh, Titus is one of the men that uh, Paul had invested a lot of his life in. Uh, Paul was uh, remarkable for his ability to take people younger than him uh, and uh, mentor them, disciple them. I think this is needed in our day where uh, older and younger people uh, have bridges of the gospel for one another. I hope in your life that you've had someone a little older than you sort of uh, demonstrate righteousness and godliness. Perhaps it's a parent or a grandparent or someone in the church who's a little bit further down the road than you. Uh, Unfortunately, we kind of live in a, a day where a lot of times generations are segmented from one another. And so every disciple of Jesus should be discipling someone younger than them in Jesus who in time... And life moves pretty fast, doesn't it? Those that are young today will be the older ones tomorrow who then can pass the faith on. And that's what Paul's doing as he's writing this letter, Titus, to a young man he's left in a pretty rough place. Titus is a pastor in a a place called Crete, which you might be able to find on a map, but it's probably what's most helpful for you to know in that that time and place, Crete was a really rough place. It was uh, often a place where criminals went, you know, the Roman Empire. If they didn't want to lock you up, they'd just put you on an island and just drop you off there and say, now you go live there, no way off the island, you live here now on the island of Crete. And over the course of time, it become a really difficult place. But here's what I love about the Apostle Paul. He looked at that rough place and he said, you know what he said? They need the gospel. And Titus, you are a faithful young man and I am going to leave you. That's how it starts, right? Verse 5, chapter 1, that's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Do you ever feel like your life is disordered, chaotic? Friends, nothing will put your life in order other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What has God done for us in Christ Jesus? I I gave the message a title, Grace for Christmas. And sort of what I mean by that is no matter what you're going to get for Christmas uh, over the course of time, more than likely it's going to uh, lose value. Just how it works, isn't it? Whatever you get, and however you're excited about it on Christmas morning, if it's a thing, over the course of time, it's going to lose value. The gospel is the one thing uh, that you can receive. The grace of God is the one thing that you can receive that it never diminishes in value over time. It's the most valuable thing that there is, the gospel. And it doesn't diminish in value. In fact, what I think is that we awaken more and more to its value as our life goes on. Well, you've got, if you've got an outline and you want to follow along in that way, you're welcome to do so. But let's start with this. We've got three points, and we'll make point number one this way. We'll talk about the rescue of grace. I love rescue stories, don't you? When I was little, baby Jessica got stuck in the well. Anybody remember that? I watched it live as it happened. I was about eight years old, and the rescue squad showed up, and they worked. And a little bit, uh, a few years ago now, a couple summers back, the little boys in Thailand got trapped in the cave. Do you remember that? And they could not get out. They had to have the rescue divers. In fact, one lost his life going in to help those children out. And when we talk about the rescue of grace, our situation was no less dire than theirs. Spiritually speaking, it was worse. 
The scripture says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, uh, we all know what it's like, or at least if you drive and have a driver's license, you know what it's like to be driving along and hear the siren, right? And maybe you look in the rearview mirror, you look ahead and you see the lights flashing, and what do you do? I hope this is what you do. What do you do? You pull over. Why do you pull over? Because you know they need the right of way. They have the priority. Something is going on in the world that they are responding to. So you want someone who can respond to an emergency situation to do so on time and, don't you hope for this, that when they show up they know what they're doing, right? That they can handle the situation. The grace of God appeared. That in and of itself is good news. But what does it do? What's it bring with it? The grace of God appeared bringing, the scripture says, salvation. On the count of three, I want you to say that word, salvation, right? One, two, three. This is what we're talking about. And how does salvation get to you? This is really important. How does salvation get to you? It is by grace. It's one of the great core essential truths of the scripture is that salvation does not get to you by your works, by your reputation, by your merit. You don't earn salvation. Salvation is a gift. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, For we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And it's especially amazing when you see that God responds in grace in in response to how we treated him. Do you know what we have said to God in our darkness and in our sin? We've said that we don't love him. And truth be told, we don't care that we don't love him. See, we were created by him and for him, but what we really want to do is live independent of him. We don't want to be bound to him, obedient to him, in a relationship with him. We really want our independence. And where has this gotten us? Absolute misery. See, nothing works. Nothing works. Life doesn't work. Marriage doesn't work. Parenting doesn't work. School doesn't work. The economy doesn't work. The government doesn't work. Nothing works. When it's disconnected from the creator. Our minds don't work like they should. We gravitate to things that don't help us. They hurt us. In fact, have you noticed, we'll do just about anything so we don't have to be alone with our thoughts. I was reading a book this week um, about the fact that we have basically forgotten as a people how to be alone with ourselves. We're constantly wired, connected. Is this true in your life perhaps? When's the last time you went 10 solid minutes without some sort of media input by a screen or audio? We've forgotten how to be alone with our own thoughts. And one of the reasons I think that's true is we don't really like to be alone. (laughs) We don't really like to be alone with our thoughts. Every time I'm alone with my own thoughts, I realize how uh, unintelligent I really am. Kind of what happens to me. But really, if we keep tracking, we don't like to be alone before him before the Lord and we live in what's uh, been called a, a, a generation of constant partial attention can't focus on things that really matter in fact we are eager from the moment we get up to the time we go to bed uh, I, I did this uh, this week and, and I tell you that you should probably do it too um, put a little thing on my phone that shows how much time I spent on my phone I had to repent before the Lord I estimated what it was, and it was triple what I thought it was going to be. Just distracted. But if you have the solitude of soul to hear this, the grace of God has appeared, and it has brought salvation. A couple of my favorite passages of of Scripture, in fact, we'll put them on the screen. The first one will be this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God... Oh, I love this phrase, being rich in mercy. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You don't want to be alone with your own thoughts because you think you've gone too far, done too much, and that God doesn't want a relationship with you. Look what the screen says. What the screen says, what the scripture says, he's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We're rescued by God. He extends us grace. Why? Because he loves us. And when does he do that? The next passage also on the screen is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who Who did Christ die for? 
the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Us. All of us. For one will scarcely die for a good person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. That's happened. People have laid their lives down for one another. Soldiers have laid their lives down for their fellow soldiers. Parents have laid their lives down for their children. But what makes God's love unique is this. He shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus laid his life down for you when you were his enemy. What's the word for that, friends? Grace. That's what grace is. Many of us find the capacity to, in a way, love our family and our friends, and we sacrifice, even lay down our lives for those we love. You'd likely go into a catastrophic event to rescue your children, right? But look at what God's Word says when the rescue happens. While we're still weak, while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. It is amazing grace. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is why we put these lights up, right? Lights in the darkness is that Jesus has drawn near to rescue us. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. He didn't say, I I came to hang out with those who have their whole life put together right. You know why Jesus didn't come to hang out with those who have their life put together right? Because nobody does. There's a little bit of comfort in that, isn't there? It's kind of a 50-50 comforting conviction. We'll have our life together apart from him. But he came to seek and to save the lost. Anybody lost and you were found by Jesus? Anybody here say, that's my testimony. I was lost as I could be. He came and sought me and found me. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's no uh, greater example of, of what can happen in a person's life when they are saved by grace than Paul, right? At one time in his life, the man who wrote every verse so far that we've studied, at one time in his life, he was full of anger. He was successful as far as education goes, as far as status goes. See, he wrote to the Philippians, man, I was advancing far beyond anybody else my age. I was accomplishing more than my contemporaries. And he lived a religious life. He knew a lot of scripture, had most of the Old Testament memorized. He worked harder than anyone. He achieved at a high level, and he was absolutely miserable. He describes it this way in Titus chapter 3. You still got it open there. Look at verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then what happened? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It's a rescue of grace. Have you been rescued? A second, this scripture teaches us the results of grace. That's point number two. Let's keep reading together. The end of verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then it has this effect, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, this is really important. That's why I asked you to open up Titus. We're all there. We're all there together. If you've got Titus before you, I want you to turn your Bible this way and hold it up to me. Or if it's on your screen, your phone, you can do that too. I want to see that we're all together on this. Titus is before us. It's open. Now, this is really important. It's really important for us to see what the Bible does not say. Because I'm about to describe how my life used to be and how many of your lives used to be and potentially how some of your lives still is right now. We live and act as if the Bible says, train yourself to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Has anybody ever felt that? That's what the message of the scripture is. Get your act together and train yourself to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, here's where the rub is. Most of us, most of us know we should renounce worldly passions and ungodliness, right? Most of us know we should do what the Ten Commandments say to do. Most of us know, right? We shouldn't covet. We shouldn't commit adultery. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't steal. Now here's the question. Does the Bible say, for the law appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness? Is that what the Bible says? Mm -mm. For your good common sense appeared, bringing salvation, 
training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Friends, all the law can do is show you that you need to be saved. And that is, by the way, a glorious thing. It is a gift of grace that God gives us the law. What the Bible can tell you to do, what the law rather can tell you to do is don't commit adultery. Can it make you not commit adultery? It can't. The Bible in the law says, do not covet. Did anybody hear the words do not covet from the law and immediately say, okay, well, I'll stop coveting. See, the law reveals that you need to be saved, but it doesn't save. What saves? It's just scripture. Grace of God in Christ Jesus saves, not the law. The law shows that you need to be saved, but it doesn't save you. And that is where it's dangerous, and some people get wrapped up in legalism. Because you know you shouldn't, you've been told you shouldn't, and now this is what we instinctively do. We look in ourselves to muster up some try-harderness, right? Give it another go. And some of us spend our entire lives trying again and again and again not to do what the law says not to do. But here's what the law is telling you. It's not, it's not in you. Friends, here's the truth. If you could be saved by the law, Jesus would not have come. He wouldn't have had to come. He is, we'll get, we'll get here, he is going to redeem us from all lawlessness. But the message of the scripture is you need to get your act together and start acting like a Christian. Here's what the scripture says. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, anybody know the scripture? It cannot. It cannot. So one of the applications for my life that I make almost on a regular basis is this. I have decided, I've resolved in my life, not to expect those who do not know Jesus to live as if they do. It kind of frees me up, right? One of the temptations we'll face as followers of Jesus is just sort of, instead of having compassion for the world around us, we just adopt a critical attitude about the world around us. Now, it is dark out there, but do you know why it's dark out there? Jesus said, nobody lights a lamp and places under it a bowl, right? But that's sometimes what we do. We've got a light, we'll just put it on a bowl so we can blend in with the darkness. Well, you need a light to light, to light up the darkness. And part of, part of the issue is, is we need to realize how we are saved. It is, not, it is not by our own effort. It is a gift of God. Now that immediately, that immediately brings up an issue, doesn't it? In fact, I think this is where a lot of our legalism comes from. Because here's where the train of thought goes. Would be this. Okay, I'm saved by grace. It's not by my works. It's not by my merit. And so if God's going to forgive me, then, man, I'm just going to send it up because he's going to forgive me. Now, Herod didn't say this, but in some uh, historical fiction-type works from long ago, you know what historical fiction is. It's real people, but sort of with a little bit of things made up, but that were true of their personality. So, so a quote attributed to Herod, that wicked king who was king, uh, in Judea when Jesus was born, uh, a little saying he had uh, from, from one of the works about him was, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving crimes. What a wonderful world it is. Right? So this seeps into us. That if God's going to forgive me anyway, why not commit the adultery? If God's going to forgive me, then I'll stay devoted to pornography. If God's going to forgive me, then I'll still keep being materialistic and accumulating. He's going to forgive me, but what does the scripture say? The grace of God appeared bringing, oh, this is the big word, what? Salvation. And I want you to hear me very clearly. Salvation means you love Jesus most. You see, it's... Here's the bottom line, you know. I kind of like to get to the bottom line of things. You're going to love or you're going to serve, obey, and proclaim whatever it is that you love most. That's just human nature because God made us that way. God made us to glorify him when we rebel against him. We don't stop glorifying things. We glorify, we're all glorifying something. But it's the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. And it's the grace that he says that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
So let me try to explain it this way. You'll never, you'll never stop the pornography. You'll never stop the adultery. You'll never stop the endless mind-numbing hours of entertainment. You'll never stop gossiping. You'll never stop the endless quest for the approval of other people in person or on social media. You'll never stop trying to get more stuff. You'll never renounce ungodliness until you see Jesus. You'll never renounce ungodliness until you really know true godliness. You'll never renounce worldly passions until you know what it's like to have superior spiritual passions. Does that make sense? When is it that you'll click no, not going to that website? When is it when you'll say no, I'm leaving this potentially compromising situation? The law can help, but it's grace that delivers. Your conscience needs to know, no, I shouldn't do this. But the only way to have sustained renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions is to have more joy in Jesus than you have in in the fleeting pleasures of sin. In short, you'll always groan until you know grace. Ungodliness never brings happiness, does it? But neither will you ever really renounce ungodliness by the strength of your will or because of fear or I might get found out or to be made feel... to be, to be made to feel really guilty over what you've done. The only thing that will truly free you is grace. You'll keep going back to moldy bread because you are hungry until you see the bountiful meal God has provided for you by grace. See, that's what he means. He said the grace of God appeared. You can see what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. So a couple of brief points underneath this heading, the results of grace. Oh, the results of grace. Somebody who is redeemed by the grace of God, that, that the enemy can't offer something that you don't have greater in Jesus. So a couple of things. Number one, we say no to what destroys us and others. The results of grace is first, we say no to what destroys us and others. It's a, it's a pretty strong word in the original Greek language used in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness. We need to pick up that word in our vocabulary, I think. Oftentimes we try to compromise with ungodliness, training us to renounce ungodliness. Again, we will inevitably focus the resources of our heart, what we think about, our our mind, our strength on whatever or whomever we love the most. Guaranteed, that's going to happen. That is happening in your life right now. And so you cannot supremely love a Savior who suffered for your sin and simultaneously serve the sin and keep saying yes to it. Now, let's get, uh, that's why I love this sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, just reality for life is that uh, sin's powerful, isn't it? I said a couple of weeks ago, the false rulers of the heart, they're pretty persistent, aren't they? It's one thing to know what the false ruler is. We've talked about them, anger and lust, greed, love of money, the approval of others, the pride, anxiety. They're all false rulers. It's one thing to know what a false ruler is. It's another to remove the false ruler, and then it's another to keep the false ruler removed. Does that make sense? They're like Pharaoh. Have you studied the Exodus? This is what the Scripture teaches us. Pharaoh let him go, people, but then what did he do? He came after them again, didn't he? He came after them again. Now, here's what the scripture says. The grace of God appeared. What verb tense is that? Past. Bringing salvation for all people. Then then does it say, and it's trained you to renounce ungodliness. It's not what it says, is it? It's present tense, isn't it? Training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This happened in your life. You live a day in that old nature, that old worldly passion, man. You have victory over it. You overcome it. The old nature, the old ways you have victory over it. And then the next morning comes and all of a sudden you're like, where did this come from? All of a sudden that sin you despised on Monday seems so attractive and alluring on Tuesday, doesn't it? Because it's an ongoing fight. Now again and again, I'll tell you, this is one of the most helpful little succinct statements I've learned in my life. The gospel has not freed us from the fight. It has freed us to fight. Make sense? The gospel has not freed us from the fight against sin. It's freed us to fight against sin. It's training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions. To say no to what destroys us and others. And then, uh, next, to say yes, right? To say yes. Well, actually, I want to give an illustration. Yeah, go on and put the picture on the screen. I got a little ahead of myself. I got kind of excited. It's kind of a gruesome picture, isn't it? Especially when you're told that that's stained on the shirt's blood. It's a, a shirt worn by Teddy Roosevelt. Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, probably my two favorite people to read about in history. So I'm just giving you all those stories today. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt had been president uh, from about 1901 to 1908 and then stepped away from the office and uh, decided he wanted to be president again in 1912. Didn't think it was going the way it should have gone. And so he's like, I'm going to go run for office again. He's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, October 14, 1912, and a crowd of people headed in to make a speech when a man stepped near him raised a gun and shot him, shot him right in the side. He began his speech. He's a little bit more from the Edward Everett School of Speech than Abraham Lincoln. He said, uh, friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. It's about as quiet as it is in here right now, probably. And then he said, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot. Had everybody's attention at that point, I'm presuming. The horrified audience gasped and the former president unbuttoned his vest and he revealed the blood stain in his shirt. Then he gives the famous line, it'll take more than that to kill a bull moose. He reached into his coat pocket and got out his speech. Let's put the next picture on the screen. There's a speech. You'll notice something interesting about it. It had been in his pocket when he'd been shot and the bullet had gone through the speech. So about every, what, eighth line he'd got to, he couldn't read it because it had a hole in it. He said, fortunately, I have my manuscript, so you can see I was going to make a long speech. And there's a bullet, there's where the bullet went through, and it probably saved me from it going to my heart. So here's for long speeches written in paper, I guess. He said, the bullet is in me now so that I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. And he went on to speak for an hour. have to be honest, I don't think I'd be up for that. An x-ray taken after the campaign showed the bullet lodged against Roosevelt's fourth oh, right rib on an upward path to his heart. Unfortunately, the projectile had been slowed by his dense overcoat, steel-reinforced eyeglass case, and hefty speech squeezed into his right jacket pocket. And he dictated a telegram to his wife that night that he was in excellent shape, and that the trivial wound was a particle more serious than the, one of the injuries any of the boys, his sons, usually continually to be having. That's some determination, isn't it? I mean, most people would say, I'm not going to give this speech tonight. I've been shot. And everybody present would have understood. But he stands there like this, gives his speech. And what I want you to know is grace gives you some grit. Grace is not weak. Grace is not ask, making you to be just some sort of nice, happy-go-lucky person in the world. No, no, that's not what grace is. Grace is the strongest, the grace of God is the strongest thing there is in the universe. When they're crucifying Jesus, nailing him to the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. You think that's weak? It's not weak. That's real strength. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The entire group spitting on him. Saved others. Why can't he save himself? It's not weak to say no to earthly passions in that moment of revenge. Right? I'll get you. Just you wait. I'm thankful here for the word training training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And you know what? Uh, we say no to, and then, and then what we say yes to. Do I have another quote on the screen? Do I have John 
Flavel, yeah, I love this. You have to read it a couple times, you know, the way people used to write. You have to read it and then reread it. What did he really say? He's a Puritan author from several hundred years ago, but he says, We discern the growth of grace as the growth of plants, which we perceive rather to have grown than to grow. I told you we'd have to read it twice, so here we go. We discern the growth of grace as the growth of plants, which we perceive rather to have grown than to grow. So if you sat there all day and watched a plant, you'd say, that plant didn't grow at all. But you walk away from a plant, this is true of a house I grew up in in Fayetteville. When I moved from that house, there's a tree in the front yard that's about this tall. Now when I go there, it just about touched the ceiling. You can perceive over time, this thing really has grown. And that's what, what's he saying? It's how godliness is in your life. Now you look at yesterday to today, you might perceive as I haven't been a whole lot of growth, but I pray and I believe it's true for those who abide in Christ that over time you can see, I've really grown. These things that used to bind me up, man, I'm having victory over them. That's how the Spirit is. That's how real life happens. And then quickly we say yes to the things that help us and others. I want you to know that Christianity is not just a list of don'ts. Don't do this and don't do that. In fact, if you were to read the New Testament and take all the commands, you'd find that there are actually more things you're told to do than you're told not to do. It's important for me. I try to instill this in my children. That Christ is not telling you how to live by what not to do. He's telling you how to live by what to do. And then he gives three uh, adjectives here that are some of the most rare things in our world today. He says, uh, we've been trained to renounce what we ought not to do and to live, to really live. And the first word here is self-controlled. Instead of living a sin-controlled life, now we live a spirit-controlled life. Look what he says here in verse 15, exhort and rebuke. Remember, Crete in that time, man, they were lawless. They were godless. They'd given themselves up to impurity, greedy to practice every form of impurity, as the scripture says in Ephesians. He says, you need to rebuke them. So in that spirit, I rebuke you today if you are living a life that is not self-controlled. With grace, but with clarity. You are called in Christ Jesus to live a self-controlled life. Now, I know you live in a generation that has no self-control. But that's not true of Christ, the most self-controlled person there's ever been. So do not live a out-of-control in accordance with my sin nature life, to be self-controlled. And then he says to live upright. Upright. Um, When we were at Passion Camp with the youth, uh, Louis Giglio gave an illustration that uh, was just really helpful. I needed it, you know, uh, for my soul. And so I'll use it briefly. I won't do it near as well as he did. Uh, how, How many of you, when you get in the car to drive somewhere, you like to drive? Anybody? It's not sinful. It's okay. It's not some, some test of your character or anything like that. I don't mean that way. You remember when you turned 16 and you got your license? I remember this. I had a 1994 Toyota Tacoma 4x4 truck that was a manual transmission, and I did not know how to drive a stick shift. But I'll tell you what, I learned. I learned because there was Julie to go see and Stuff to go do, right? Behind the wheel, you can go. You're... And when it comes to our lives, too often, too often, y'all, that's what Louis Giglio was getting at, and too often we've just sort of let the world drive. world carry us where it says to go. Care about what it says to care about. Emphasize what it says to emphasize. And ultimately it is the Lord, but the Lord in you some of us have gotten to a point in our lives where we just need to slide back in to the driver's seat. Do you know what I mean? I said, no, no, I'm going to have him tell me where to go. I'm going to have him tell me what to watch, what to look at, what to love, what to go after. Again, not just what to stop doing, but what to do with my life. That's what it means to live upright. Better to live upright than down low, amen? If you're saved, if you're saved... You can renounce somebody else driving for you. And, and then last thing quickly is, under this point, is we act now. We act now. 
I'll make this brief, succinct, but maybe a little Abraham Lincoln, every phrase will matter. If you're going to do it, do it now. If you're going to do it, do it now. You don't have tomorrow. That's what the scripture says. The devil doesn't matter, it doesn't matter to him what you do as long as you'll do it tomorrow. Some of us in our lives, we've been planning to do something for the Lord that requires courage, a little bit of audacity, be misunderstood by most everybody around you. And you just keep saying, well, maybe, maybe tomorrow will be better. No, now. To live upright, godly lives when? In the present age. And while you're doing that, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Real quick, this will help you doctrinally. Salvation doesn't begin with works, but it sure does lead to works. It started with grace, right? It's a paragraph. It's by grace. By grace, the grace of God has appeared, and the end result is that you are now zealous for good works. Not zealous for good works to get grace, but zealous for good works because you've received grace. Does that make sense? There's an eternal difference, friends, between, between the two. We'll do the last point quickly, and that's simply the redeemed of grace. See the rescue of grace, we see the results of grace, and then just give you what it says here is our status in Christ. We're waiting for our blessed hope. Encourage you, don't put your hope in this life. Don't put your hope in this world. Don't put your hope in something. Put your hope in the person of Jesus. We're waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're a Bible student, you'd notice the word appear. That verb is used twice. The grace of God has appeared. It's when Jesus was born. His glory will appear when he returns. And as emphatically as I can say it, you want to receive the grace before the undisputed glory of Jesus is made manifest in the world. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. His glory will be recognized north, south, east, and west. Our status in Christ is three things according to the scriptures. First of all, we're fully redeemed. How? Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. Redeem is a word used when a debt needs to be paid and it's been paid, right? Somebody owed a debt. If the debt's been paid, the debt has been redeemed. We had a sin debt, needed to be paid. Jesus paid it on our behalf. He redeemed us from all lawlessness and next to purify for himself. So we're fully redeemed. Next, we're thoroughly cleansed. Purify for himself. No, he didn't save us so that we could go on sinning. He saved us so that we could be free from sin. And there is no power in your life without purity of heart. You've got no purity in your life, you've got no power. But you've got purity, you'll have some power, thoroughly cleansed. And last and finally is that we are eternally treasured. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The heart behind that phrase, uh, people for his own possession, is as the scripture talks about Jesus elsewhere as a, a bridegroom who's come for his bride, right? His desire his desire is to provide for his bride. You're eternally treasured, fully redeemed, thoroughly cleansed, eternally treasured. We'll conclude where we started. How did that happen? How did that happen? Grace of God appeared. Grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. Message from the scripture for your life is not, hey, get your act together. Train yourself up to renounce ungodliness. No. The message is, however, that God has done something in sending his son. And in response to what God has done, now Christ, by his spirit, will dwell in you. And then you'll begin to be trained in an ongoing way to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. And your hope now is not set in this life. So you're freed up from frustration and being a critic because you're waiting for your blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. He's going to come back, and the one who came back has already done something for you in the past. What did he do? He gave himself for you. He gave himself for you to redeem you, to cleanse you, so that you would now belong to him.
Are you zealous for good works? Are you zealous for that he'd be known? Are you zealous to sacrificially give to, to missions and sacrificially give? It's the grace address. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Declare these things. I pray we've done so. Exhort and rebuke that no one disregards this message. Stand together and we'll pray together. We need the Holy Spirit's power to be at work among us now. A couple real simple applications for our invitation. The invitation is when we as a group of believers respond to what God has said in his word. And first is this. This came to my heart again and again as I prayed and studied this week. This invitation to you this morning. In your heart, way down deep, do you need to allow grace to begin to do what for your whole life up to this point, you've sought either the law or your own effort to do? And that's to save you. To anybody here today, maybe you've been to church your whole life. This is the 10,000th Sunday you've been in a worship service. Have you ever been saved by grace? God did for you what you couldn't do for yours. You've been saved by grace. The invitation is open this morning. It'll be my joy, my privilege to stand here at the front and receive anybody who needs to respond to the invitation of grace. The grace of God has appeared. It's what, he's who's brought salvation. And then just clearly from the scripture, Are there worldly passions in your life that need to be renounced in light of grace? Do you need the Lord's help in living a self-controlled, upright life in the present age? This past week, if you look at it, have you been zealous for good works? Father, I pray for an invitation that's in line with the scripture. Oh, how blessed we are to be able to open up your word today to read the scripture in a language we can understand and it's accessible to us. Thank you that your grace has appeared and you have brought salvation for all who will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray today if there's someone here, they've never responded to grace, that your spirit be at work, see, that they see their need and see the availability that you have for grace in Christ Jesus towards them. I pray for believers that are here today. They're followers of Jesus. They're in that process of being trained to renounce ungodliness. But right now, if truth be told, there are some worldly passions that are holding sway in their hearts. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that lust will be crucified. Pride will be crucified. The love of money will be crucified. Anxiety will be crucified. Now, we'll be zealous for good works. We'll be zealous to reconcile. We'll be zealous to proclaim We'll be zealous to forgive. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name that this morning we do not hear the word only and so deceive ourselves. Would you give us grace to be doers? In Jesus' name, amen.